All right, we're in Revelation this morning. We're in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to finish off the seven churches this morning. We're going to get into God's authority next week in chapter 4. I'm excited about that, and um, eventually into chapter 5 as well, but next week we'll definitely be talking about God's authority. We also, so if you want to open your Bible there, we'll be jumping around your Bible a little bit today. If you have an opportunity to bring your own Bible, I'd appreciate that. It is always good since it's kind of like I tell them on Thursday night, we're at Bible study. You probably want to bring your Bible. So Sunday morning, same. If you have a Bible, you probably want to bring it. It's a good idea, good habit to get into. So I feel in the church today, if we were going to assign God a barnyard animal, I think we'd probably assign him a cow. Because growing up on a dairy farm, you know cows, they have the potential for power. They have the potential to be like, they could crush you and like shake in their head. They're honestly that strong. And I've been crushed by cows, and they push into pressure. So if you push on a cow, he will push back, she will push back on you. And um, it's interesting. So I, I, though I would probably put a little bit more stipulations on that, and I would say a domesticated cow, because a domesticated cow, though they're powerful and strong, it's... and. If they got out of control, and if they get out of control, they can be trouble. But he, he doesn't. He doesn't. God's my friend, and he accepts me for me. And that's how we should be, right? And, and God should always accept me for me. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, he's always kind, and he's always well-mannered. He never gets upset. He never does because he's a loving God, right? And there's no way God would treat me like that. He would never come before, I would never have to come before his holiness and be judged because he provides for me. He shows me these ways and I can control where God, where I want God to see and what I want God to do. And well, if I keep him well fed, then he'll do what I want. So if I give him my prayers and I give him my offerings, God will become my little idol. Oops. And that's where it all goes wrong, right? When we, every time we try to put God in a box, God will burst out of that box in a mighty way, in a way that you're not expecting. And we find out that God may be a cow, but he's not a castrated steer, but he's a very aggressive bull. And he can take you by his horns and he can put you where he wants to put you. But he can also be the most loving, kind docile animal in the barnyard too, can he? God is many multifaceted, and we need to look at God's justice just as much as we look at God's love and kindness. There are consequences for our actions, and no, God is not someone or something that we can just ask and get what we want. He's not our vending machine. He is a, he is a loving God, but he's a jealous God. He has a standard by which we need to live, and he wants us to love like he does. Not selfishly, but with an agape love that is giving away and not expecting a return. And that is difficult for us humans today, because we like to walk in our self-righteousness and say, well, what they did is, is right or wrong or not right or wrong, and it 
it's kind of confusing because those don't match up, and I want them to match up because I like my self-righteousness, because I feel like I can earn my way into heaven a little bit better that way. I have a little bit higher standing of myself than I think than what I really am, and that's dangerous. And God, he's not controlled by our will, yet he provides for us, should we, and we should be grateful for that not hoarding or holding on to things that belong to us because our God will not be manipulated. Our God will not accept a halfway faith, will he? He will not accept self-righteousness. He will not accept our good deeds to get us into heaven. It comes down to grace. It comes down to a gift that he has given to us, and we have to be accepting of that, and that is hard to do. Why is it hard? Because it's against our human nature to try to fix things. Especially men, we like to fix things. We think something's broken, and we say, oh, I, got I can fix that. Um, we think something goes a little slow, we develop an app for that. We could stick on our phones, we put it on our hip pocket, and we're like, all right, we got this all together. I can calculate it, I can put it together, and I can, I got it right there, right? But that brings us to our point today. Where are we going? God will pursue us with an authentic relationship even while we sin and even while we praise until we're at peace in his love. God pursues us whether we're sinning, whether we're praising, whether we're doing right, whether we're doing wrong. He will pursue us until we are at peace in his love. And where will we ultimately find that peace? We will find it in heaven. So that means he will constantly pursue us while we're here on earth. So open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in 14. Since we started the seven churches, I've been waiting to get to Laodicea because God always reveals something new to me throughout all these seven he has, but I was very excited to get to Laodicea because it's my favorite church. This is one of the ones that really kicked me in the butt when I was teenager, college age, and said, you need to get your act together because this is a very good description of how you're living. Yay. Oh, boy. So, once again, he's reminded me of my self-righteousness as we get into this again. And as I mentioned before, the church of Laodicea is one of the churches that does not have anything good written about it. I think you look at the Laodicean church and you can see a lot of the American church in there, which is unfortunate. Um, but... There is hope. Whenever we have Christ Jesus, we always have hope, don't we? So look at verse 14 with me, and we'll continue through 17. It says, Write to the letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things that you do, and, and neither, you are neither hot nor cold, and I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are, since you are, are bleh, excuse me, you're hot or cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wow, what a description. Don't hold back, right? 
Point number one this morning, reset and refocus our motivation. Who do we choose to serve and why do we choose to serve him? Jesus Christ, he doesn't want Christians acting like a bunch of politicians on the campaign trail. He doesn't want you to act like a bunch of politicians on the campaign trail. Well, what do you mean by that, pastor? I mean a person who goes to one party and listens to their concerns and needs and says, Oh, I see you have some good concerns and needs. And then he goes to the opposition and he hears their concerns and needs and he says, I hear what you said there. You have some good points to consider. But he didn't really do anything out of either one of those answers, did he? Which is to their shame and he doesn't take a stand and he goes wishy-washy and does what he wants by the time he gets to the end. They're like reeds that are blown back and forth in the wind. There's no character. There's no backbone. They're corrupted. For their lust of power, so they'll tell anybody what they think they need so they can get anything that they want. They, have, in a sense, have become their own authority. But why did you bring authority into this, Pastor? I didn't see anything about authority there. But actually, it does say something about authority. If you look at 17a, before he belittles us, he belittles us a little bit more, and we didn't even realize it. He says, I am rich. I have everything I want, and I don't need a thing. What's he talking about there? I was listening to Baruch about this a little bit, and so I had to do a word study of that second phrase, I have everything I want. What does that mean? What's the Greek word? What's the intent of that? And I came up with something, but first, I am rich says I am self-sufficient. I don't need anything around me. I don't need, I have, I lack for want, and I can provide for my own needs. Then I have everything I want, in a sense means simply, I have found power. In the sense that I have these possessions, I can use it to wield how I want to get, and I have, I can give out my provision how I want to influence others. It's defined like this in the Bible dictionary. The second definition is an affluent is an, is affluent in resources so that he can give blessings of salvation to all. So if you want to be saved, if you don't want to be hungry anymore, you come to me and I will provide your needs. In a sense, they're saying their authority is just as good or better than God. I will be their savior. Look at how I've done. Look what I've done for you. Isn't that what a politician says on the campaign trail after he gets done with his first four years in office? He goes and lets you know all that he has done, whether it was, they'd take, they'd take credit for anything that they could, right? Mosquitoes had a, had a, blight come about them and they're all wiped out and politician all of a sudden he becomes the master of mosquitoes doesn't he right and then if or maybe they become worse that's obviously the competition that brought the mosquitoes on worse this year right it's just ridiculous it's those are some just silly things but if you really look at their arguments they're just as silly they're just as silly and we can be just as silly before a holy god 
We could do the same thing where we're trying to make our position for ourselves and we say, well, God, look what I've done for you. Look what I've accomplished. And he says, that's all foolishness. It's all rubbish and garbage. What you need to crave is my salvation, my grace. And so that brings us to the second part of the verse. If you look at 17b, you see it says, don't you realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? Don't sugarcoat it, God. <laughs> I thought I was doing pretty good. This is me to a T. As a high schooler, young college student, I thought I had it all together. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at how good I've been for you, Lord. And he goes, no, you're actually wretched and miserable and poor and blind well, you got anything else, Lord? And naked. Oh, thanks. I didn't make sure there's five. You look at the number five. What do we find that in Hebrew writings? We find that a longing. You've come up wanting. There's something there. There's a trial there that you have not achieved, and there's something wrong. So we're going to look at those five this morning. And if you look at this person, they look good from the outside. They look like they're supposed to. Um, they function. Maybe they volunteer. They, um, as Craig used to say all the time, they give to Jerry's kids. But uh, you know, on the inside, they're, what are their motivations for the, doing these things? So if you look at these things, this is much like Jesus telling the Pharisees, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You have a brilliant appearance on the outside. It's magnificent. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see the tombs that are down in the valley. You can still see much of the splendor that was there, um, though they've been um, broken and things by many of the, uh, and looted and stuff over the years. But they still, you could imagine the sight that they were. And he says, you have the splendor. You look great on the outside, but inside you are dead. You are longing. You have nothing to fill that void because you're trying to get to me through self-righteousness. They try to do it themselves. They've, one of the examples that you see in, um, that Jesus gives about them, they, they try to establish laws that overexceed God's law. So they'll say, well, I'm going to give this blessing to the Lord. It was supposed to go to my parents for their inheritance and keep care of them, but I'm not going to do that because it's more important that we give it to the Lord. And so now I can look good in front of all my friends because I give this large sum of money when really I didn't have any to give because I was to keep my parents alive. But we can justify it by saying, well, I give it to the Lord. So that was a good thing. And that's wicked, right? God is saying that we have a responsibility to our parents. We have a responsibility to things on this earth. And we need to be um, good servants of that. So we walk into the five. First, we come into the wretched. Their trial could have been many of things. But one of the things I think you see in Laodicea, they're a very well-off city. And so they get into a, the comfort of wealth, self-provision. They don't have to pray for our daily bread because they know their daily bread is, is where it's at. It's in the pantry. 
and they don't have to worry about whether they're going to have um, good running water because that city actually did kind of have running water at the time and, and they didn't need to worry about whether they were going to be healthy or sick because if you even go there today, some of the, the water has some of the best minerals out of everything that's been given. And so they had all those things. But Jesus says it the best in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. He says, Do not store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store up treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. And here's the key verse, verse 21. It says, Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So what has crept in? What has taken some of that treasure? What has is, what is gotten into there? Well, where's your treasure? Where's your time, talent, and treasure going into investment? There can be a lot of things. Maybe it's your family. Well, I, I had to make it a church, but... You know, my family had this thing. We had, maybe it's sports. Maybe it's, um, there's a lot of different things that go with family. It could be health. Maybe they're, um, they can't make it. Or maybe they have a disagreement with somebody at church, so I can't go to church because they can't go to church. And there's a lot of different things like that. We can make lots of excuses for family, can't we? We can make a lot of excuses for our talents. Well, I'm not good enough to go. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a broken person. Here's the one I hear as a pastor, more than not, I'm not good enough to go to church. I'm not good enough. I, once I, I work just a little bit more, I'll, I'll be able to go to church. That's so foolish. The reason why we're at church is because we realize we're not good enough to be in the presence of the Lord. So we come and confess that to him, right? That's, that's what church is all about. It's not about our righteousness. It's not about our goodness or our glory. It's about God's glory. And we're here to confess that God is righteous. God is holy. And when we get that opposite, we get into a mindset which is very similar to our next one where we're going to get to being miserable. So I ask you when you're on the wretched comment, what's your motivation for doing good? What is your motivation for doing good. Do you do it for your own self-righteousness or do you do it just to do it? And that, in a sense, would be the glorify God. You do it even though you don't want to do it because God gets the glory. I don't want... Okay, so growing up on the farm, the worst smell in the world for me is rotten soybeans. You want to get worse than rotten soybeans? You mix a little rotten corn in with it. Together, you have the worst stench. I don't gag very much. I don't have a very good gag reflex, but I can gag on that one. And it's rough. And it's, it's, a, it's a dull scent and a, and a sharp scent all at the same time when you mix those two together. And it is harsh, harsh on the, the senses. It's kind of like our good old friends over here at ADM when they blow it across the river times... 15. So I don't know if you'd want to walk down there and smell that stuff because that's what's actually going in and they disperse it into the air. But that's the fermentation process that goes on. And it stinks. 
that's kind of like the smell of sin in God's life. Now, if you got to go clean out sin in your life, what's your motivation? Is it so you look better? Is it so you look like a certain way? Or is it because you want to get right with God? Did you know you can clean up? I can make myself look good, but you're never going to be good enough to be in front of a holy God. You clean up to get right with God. So who does the cleaning? Who does all the, who does all the pulling out all that junky, smelly dirt, the scum, the rotting flesh, in a sense, on us? Jesus Christ does. It's not us. We can try to get that off of our skin, but it's never going to go. The only thing that's going to wash away our leprous sin in our life is the blood of Jesus. Amen? It's rough. And that is, that's hard. That's hard to get because I want to fix myself, but we can't. Miserable. Pitied by the Lord. You're miserable. You may, life might be grand, might be great, but if you slow down enough to realize there's something missing, not only do you realize that, but God already recognizes that, and he takes pity on you. He throws a bone out there every once in a while and says, listen, if you just came to me, you would understand what it means. Well, when I think, well, that's my first problem, I'm thinking, Right? You ever try to think for the Lord? Well, Lord, I think not. Whoa, 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 whoa. When I think I'm doing okay, I think I'm doing okay. I, th- I think I'm doing okay. I think I'm doing okay. Don't you already hear that I'm trying to justify my sin right there? Look, or it's a little bit more blatant. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. I've done this. I'm the greatest at this. I've arrived. I'm number one. Don't we see that in our competition, especially in secular competition? No matter whether it's sports and it's something um, like how oh, mental or, you know, I'm the best, I'm the valedictorian in my class or I'm the smartest person at work. I can beat anybody at a word game. I can do this and this and this. And where we give accolades of those things, we want to be the best. Is our somewhat our holy nature being corrupted by our sin nature? Because we should seek the best, but we got to realize the best comes with the Lord. And when we receive the best in our lives, where do we give the praise? We give that back to the Lord too, right? So we're miserable, and when we think we're the greatest... And we think and we got to remember what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar says, looks out onto his kingdom that basically the Lord gave him to humble his citizens of the Israelites, his church family. And he says, look what I've done, Nebuchadnezzar did. And God said, you're a bird man. For seven years, you are a bird man. How would you like to do that? You start growing feathers. Wow. I, I just, and they say, well, that couldn't happen. That could never happen. 
Well, it's happened again in history. And so um, there's proof that of other people having that later in history. And so it probably happened. And God said it happened, so it happened. So he looks out onto his kingdom and he says, look what I did. And you know how he recovered from that? He finally admitted how much of a wretched man he was. I am nothing. And you look at the book of Daniel, you look at this testament that Nebuchadnezzar writes in there through Daniel. I don't know how it gets in there, but it's, it's first person from Nebuchadnezzar. And he declares that God is God. God is holy. God is amazing. And I am nothing. And God works with that. It's like, I can work with that. Praise God. And he restores him to his kingdom, restores him to the kingdom as a steward instead of as a ruler, in a sense. And that is what's amazing. So what's your motivation for building your kingdom? Store up treasures in heaven. What are we talking about there? We're talking about character traits. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. What does the law give us? Gives us a sense of justice, right? But when we walk with the Lord, we are always on the right side of justice. And you see the fruit of the Spirit coming out in your life because your motivation is to serve against such thing. There is no law because you are in the right you don't have to worry about the law. The Holy Spirit will convict you when you do wrong, okay? It's getting to that humble place. So, it brings us to the third one, poor in spirit. Well, I thought the Bible says we're blessed are those who are poor in spirit. It actually does say that, but it's a different kind of poor in spirit. It means that they're broke, they're not broken, that they're prideful, that they're, they want to do it their own way means they're not growing in the Lord. They're promoting the power of themselves. It would be like today when you're scrolling through your browser headlines. The best one, I think, by far is Yahoo. Have you ever, you ever looked through Yahoo's headlines? They are like clickbait all the way. So not that you need to go look at Yahoo's clickbait, but these are the major headlines. It's like, it'll bring like this. It says, major executives do these five things. Click here to find out. Well, now I got to see what these executives do. I got, I got to know, right? Or seven habits that will make you great. Don't forget to look at the last one, right? You're like, what? Uh, click, 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 you know, Three things that can that if you change right now, you'll get a better you. Well, one, who is the God in that situation? I am. Seven habits that make me better. Three habits that I could have a better you. Right? Aren't, aren't they professing right there? What is that? That's secularism right there. You can be... It's almost like the slogan in the army, even though I really like the slogan, be all that you can be. Um, that is a secular 
slogan. Hmm. Even though they should bring that back. I just, I don't like the one they have now, but anyway. But if those three things aren't reading your Bible, meditating on his word and prayer, then we're doing something wrong. We're deceiving ourselves into self-righteousness because we have to know the standard, in other words, to be able to follow the standard. Amen? If we don't know God's word, how do we know whether we're walking in his righteousness or our righteousness? Which brings us to the next one, blind in our perspective. We need to look to God's word to find the truth. God's sword, your God's word, his sword will clear our vision. How do I know when people are in God's word? As a pastor, how do I know my congregation is in their word? Because they agree with me? No. No. Sometimes it's even because they don't agree with me that I know that they're in God's word. It's because... They will not cross the line that God's word has established. You want to find a faithful Christ follower, they have a line, they have a moral character that they will not cross. Or if they, know, if they cross it, they know their sin and they seek repentance. Right? That is one thing I know for sure. When someone seeks repentance, they obviously have a, a line where they've, they've crossed. So our spiritual blindness, it shows up in our speech. It shows up in our lifestyle. How are you Monday through Saturday? Not just on Sunday morning, maybe even Sunday afternoon, right? We're already seeking our own things. It's in our lack of service. Or we serve self-righteously. I'm doing this for the community. I'm doing this, this. I'm doing this. It makes me feel good. All those things are nice, but they're all not correct. I like to feel good, right? But that's not the reason why I serve. I serve out of a motivation to honor the Lord. And so God is God, and I am not. And when I get that correct, even in my service, the Lord shows up. So what is your motivation for your politics? Man, I'm just going there this morning. I've hit on politics three times already. I'm just going to go there and step on your toes some more. I'm kind of getting tired of it as a pastor, honestly. Um, what is your motivation for your worldview? If you are divisive in your worldview or in your politics, I will say this. Christ Jesus did not come to divide. He came to unify. And that is hard, hard to hear when you see somebody that you just know was wrong. That doesn't even follow God's word. That doesn't, but God doesn't say to go out to the wood shed, pick out your witching stick, and beat them back to your side, does he? No, it takes patience. It's taken a lifetime from them to get to there. It takes a lifetime to get back to moral character. God pursues life. That is one that I know for sure that God pursues. God says it in John chapter 1. He says it throughout scripture. He says it in 
Psalms 139. I knew you while you were in your womb. God pursues life. But I can't go beating somebody over the head and say you're wrong. That's not going to work. I need to go and ask that good old question, why? Why have you come to that conclusion? How have you got to this point? And now, can I help walk them back? Because if I don't have a listening ear, then I'm not going to win the soul. I might lose the argument, but I'm not going to win their soul to heaven, am I? We need to have a standard, but we need to be, have patience in our standards too, don't we? Ooh, ouch. Which brings us to the last one, naked. What he means by that is a sense of shame. Do you have a sense of shame when you sin? Now, if you walk through me with these four motivational warnings and you look and you say, I'm really, I've, I've done pretty well in these four. I'm, I'm doing good. But you know who needs to listen to this is Mo. He never listens to this stuff. He needs to get this right, right? So if we get that attitude, you need to go back and read your list again. And so take heed in this. I would say if you're, if you're like, oh, I'm doing pretty good, or uh, so-and-so needs to do this and I'm, I'm fine, you happen to be the emperor in his new clothes. That's right. You guys know the story? The emperor in his new clothes, the emperor's new clothes. So he goes out there and he's like, I need, need new clothes. And this tailor comes along and he says, I have these new clothes. They're invisible to everybody except for those that can see the splendor in it. And he convinces the king to go out and pray in front of the whole, whole kingdom in his new clothes. And he's basically standing out there naked that he's been duped into this because he's so vain. And some of the kids are like, he's standing out there naked. And finally tell him the truth. He gets out there and he's like, why didn't anybody tell me? Well, anybody with common sense knew that you were standing out there naked. That's why. Right? So anybody with common sense, sound like a good friend to me. Right? I have people in my life that tell me like it is and that are do it unashamedly, and sometimes I need to hear that. You're like, sometimes? <laughs> right? Anytime I mess up, I need to hear that. Don't I? And they do in a loving manner, and sometimes we have a good relationship. They can, they can do it in a very firm manner, and I need to heed that. And it's not very often that a pastor of a church has a congregation that's willing and able to do that back and forth and have that relationship with the pastor. But I have that here at this church, and that's one of the things that makes White Rose wonderful. I don't come up here and profess to be the best, and nor do you. But as iron sharpens iron, we come together with the assumption that we're both broken, that we both are in need of a Savior, and we both need Jesus to lift us out of that muck in the mire. And if we come with that assumption and humility, God does amazing things. Amen? Because in our weakness, he is strong. 
His power is made perfect in our weakness because think of it, God's power is going to come at 100% every single time, right? If we provide 17% and that's the best we could ever do, God gets a lot of the glory, right? But if we come to God and say, I can't even do like a tenth of the percent, and God's coming with 99.9%, wow, God shows up. Because guess what? He uses that little bit that you're willing to give, and he shows up in a big way, and they're like, wow, there's no way. There's no way Shane could have done that without him. There's no way, fill in your name, could have done that without something bigger than him. And that's attractive, isn't it? It's attractive because of what our call to worship said. We need need reset in his grace and focus our motivation by walking in faith. When we understand God's grace and we surrender to it, we can walk in faith. It says in Micah 6, 8, He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. To understand, it starts with grace. Let Jesus be your motivation first, last, and always. God will pursue us to an authentic relationship while we sin or while we praise, until we are at peace in his love. So where do we go from here? God's identified five different things that we need to work on with three on top of that, that he says, this is what you think you are, this is what you actually are. So we've broken down eight different things all all together so far. And this is the advice he gives us in Revelation chapter 3, 18 through the end of the chapter. Verse 22. So I advise you, anytime God's giving you advice, you better listen. To buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be ashamed in your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock, and if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone who has ears must listen to the Spirit and understand what he says to the churches. First, it says, buy gold that has been refined by the Lord. Buy gold that's been refined by the Lord. The refiner's fire, where do we see that? We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. It says, because of God's grace to me. Because of God's grace to me. Because Jesus died on the cross, he rescued me. I recognize I'm not good enough. He is, I surrender to it. He gives me his grace. I therefore become a child of God. Now I can build a foundation like an expert builder. What is that foundation? It starts with faith. 
right? We see, you want to see that foundation of faith and how it builds off of grace. Look at, um, I believe it's in 2 Peter um, chapter 1. It's about verse 10-ish. It's, it's right around there, five verses on one way or the other. And it says, uh, get, add to faith, goodness, goodness, knowledge, knowledge, and it goes all the way up to love, okay? So that is the foundation. That's what we need. So this refining fire, God's grace, I've laid a, a foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one we already laid in Christ Jesus. Anyone who builds on the foundation must use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So they will be saved. They've been justified in Christ, but the sanctification process has not gone far enough. What's it look like to have sanctification? It looks like character. It looks like people that you can trust. It looks like honesty. It looks like the fruit of the Spirit. It looks like somebody that you can put faith in, somebody that doesn't tell secrets. All those things are character that God works on. All those things look like gold, silver, precious gems to the Lord. And when he refines those, those will stay. But the wood, the chaff, they will all burn off. The self-righteousness, the the self-pleasures that we do, the things that we think may bless us, but really they're curses. They may be comforts on this earth is what I mean, but really they're, they're holding us back. And then he asked for white garments of salvation. You look at Zechariah chapter 3. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into that much. But remember, if you need a, a refresher, look at Zechariah chapter 3, and it's God taking off our muck and our mire and, and placing his clothes on us. Or you look at Psalms 51 verse 7 and 8, and it's really good for communion this morning. It says, Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. So purify me from my sins is like taking an SOS pad and scrubbing my my skin until it's beet red. That's what that means. Cleanse me with hyssop. That's what they did. It was a, that was their SOS pad. Okay, Wash me Water, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again, the joy of my salvation. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Praise God for his brokenness. Amen? Yes, David saying that. Yep. You have broken me. It's weird. But I get excited when God breaks me, when he convicts me of my sin, and I I walk before him humbly. Salvation is working in spiritual brokenness. Walking with the assumption that I am sinful, 
that I'm inclined to sin. And we walk in a manner that says, I'm broken, but Christ is not. There is joy of salvation. God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am not. John the Baptist said it this way, He must become greater, and I must become less. We must build off of this foundation. The Lord disciplined those he loves. I had to cut a lot out of this passage because I could have given three sermons out of this, these seven verses. Easy. But I went, chose this. He knows us. He knows us by name. He knows us. The, he can count the hairs on our heads and he can give it in a definite answer. He also knows our spirit. He knows who we are. Invite him to search your heart and your thoughts, like it says in Psalms 139. Hebrews 12, 6 and 7 and verse 10 says it like this. For the Lord disciplined those he loves. He punishes each one he accepts as a child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who, ne who is never disciplined by his father... Verse 10, for our earthly fathers discipline us for a few years and do the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. Sometimes sickness comes because we're in a broken world. Sometimes sickness comes because God is humbling ourselves. Sometimes a broken down car is a broken down car, but sometimes it's God getting our attention. And a lot of times he puts that conviction on our souls and our spirits. Right? Verse 20 and 21, it says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share the meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Salvation is your decision. If you ever find that picture of the Lord knocking at the door, you'll look at the picture and you'll notice there's no handle on the outside. The door can only be answered and opened from the inside. It is our choice. God is always out there knocking. It's us that keep the door closed. Or keep it open. And he will share a meal with us. He will do life with us. What's one of the funnest things to do with family? Share a meal with them, right? He will be your Abba, your daddy, your father who cares about you better than any father, earthly father could ever. The joy of your salvation. How do I know that I am surrendered? How do I know that I'm surrendered? I think about it this way. I look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and I ask myself, who killed Jesus? Who's the one that ultimately put Jesus on the cross? Was it the leaders? Was it Pilate? I mean, they had the authority to do it. They were able to manipulate to do it. But I propose 
that it's the crowd. I propose it's the lukewarm in the crowd. The ones that they didn't really study to know. They didn't really care. They just went about their life. And so they, they heard these guys that they seem to know. They know their Bible better than I do. So I'm going to listen to them. I'm not going to put them through the, the vice and through the different systematic ways to, to know. I'm just going to trust them and what they know because after all, they got the Bible memorized. I've heard them quote it before at, at my synagogue when they came to visit one time. And they're yelling, crucify. They're yelling, get rid of Jesus. And they come up with a good point. They say, after all, if he really is the son of God, he can come off the cross anytime he wants to. Because if he really, truly is God, there's nothing we can do to put him up there. And that kind of sounds good to me, right? So we justify our sins. We justify what we're doing. And we yell, crucify. Wasn't this our teacher? Wasn't he the one that, that brought us the miracles? Isn't he your savior? If he truly is your savior, then why can't he save himself? Crucify him. Crucify him. Were they surrendered at that point? No, they were not. You see, we were among the crowd that day when we were still sinners yelling, crucify him. I know better. I know what I want. Crucify him. He's not good enough for me. Crucify him. I can handle my own problems. Crucify him. And we condemned an innocent man just like God planned. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Bring me back to the point that I understand I'm a broken man in need of a Savior. And he died right there on the cross for me, for my sin. But the story doesn't end there, does it? So we have Easter Sunday where he raises again and he defeats death and he pursues us to authenticity. No matter whether we're in our sin, no matter whether we're praising God, he pursues us until we are at peace in his love. And that's the kind of God that I want to have a relationship with. Not over me, not under me, not beside me, but with me doing life with me. And he wants to have that relationship with you too. That's what communion is all about this morning, folks. It means we have a relationship with Jesus. We've surrendered to that kind of Savior. And if you've surrendered to that kind of Savior, we invite you to have communion with us this morning.